This is Nonprofit Tangent. You're listening to a podcast about nonprofit stories in New York City. And I am here with Amira Jandeli, who is from Future Meets Present. He's an environmental futurist and social designer. How do you like that? Nice. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds great. It's that was great. And we made it up uh, right before. Yeah. That was cool. That was a fun to watch that process, <laughs> watching you design. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also here with Bill Levy from NACO, who's the CEO and founder of NACO. i got to come up with some sort of like cool title. You got to. Yeah, we just did it. Founder is just kind of boring, right? No more than that. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Cool. So thank you guys for joining me, both here because you have awesome organizations that are trying to improve the environment. This episode's theme is environmental nonprofits in New York City. So we're going to hear some stories and um, you both are very deep into particularly the non-waste space. Is that that be a way to say it? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I appreciate you guys spending some time. We'll listen to the different interviews and then I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on what they're doing. Sounds great. All right. The first interview is with Kaya Rose, who is from Climate Countdown. It's a web series. And she'll kind of tell us a little bit how she got started and uh, some of the impacts that, that her web series has made. Climate Countdown. Thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. What is Climate Countdown? Yeah, so Climate Countdown is a web series that maps out the ecology of climate solutions. And I I started it at the beginning of 2015. Uh, and 2015 was a big year for climate change. It was um, a whole year in the climate world was kind of geared towards COP21, which is where we ended up getting the Paris Agreement signed, um, which at the time... I knew almost nothing about, and I wanted to find out more, which is why I started this series. So you would call it, I guess, a documentary series? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a kind of low-key, informal, conversational web series. We kind of, my my style references at the beginning were actually podcasts. Oh, okay. Um, because I liked just how you got to hear some of the, the kind of setting up and the questions and the interviewer was kind of part of the experience. Right. So it has that kind of style to it. So it's documentary, but it's kind of intentionally a bit low budget and a bit low key. Gotcha. First, my idea was to like follow negotiators as they kind of forged a path towards a successful COP21. And then I realized very quickly that like getting access to negotiators and their schedules was just going to be with no budget was going to be almost impossible. So I kind of rethought um, you know about what what it could be, and that was when the podcast came in. Serial was a big podcast at the time, um, and I thought one of the great things about that was that the you know the person guiding you is the host, and she doesn't know much, and she's finding out as you're finding out. So I ended up, I was like, well, who do I have access to? I have access to me. <laughs> so if I put myself in it, and I'm kind of the character finding out because I know so little, right? And it also was a good, um, it kind of set the bar because I knew very little. It, it meant that people couldn't get away with very much jargon because they'd say an acronym and I'd be like, I don't know what that is. Can you please tell me what that is? So it kind of helped demystify a lot of it. Usually I'm learning a lot about the project from the person during the interview, but because you have a web series, I've been able to go on and, and watch it and, and like learn. I'm like, okay, this is the project. 
it's fun watching you learn about these things. I mean, uh, seeing you struggle through some of the acronyms is, is really fun. You yeah. know, I still struggle through some of the acronyms. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so yeah, this might actually be a good uh, chance to listen to some clips sure. from your documentary, get yeah. us a sense of, of what the documentary is about and or the series is about, and then maybe talk a little bit about the impact. So yeah, so this is um, this is episode thirteen of season one. I had built a relationship with a teacher at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and he was teaching his class about climate negotiations and was using Climate Countdown in the class. And so we actually managed to set up a Skype with his class from Paris, and that's where it starts. Okay. Come to me like, oh, we were in the news. What was that about? And I would like tell them my spiel of what's going on. Like. Do you know what's going on in Paris? And they'd be like, no, no idea. So at least they know now. I mean, that's great like, that your friends are now asking what's mm-hmm. going on in Paris, because I think a huge part of it is kind of normalizing it. We're at that point where if, we don't, if they don't get something done and our generation doesn't speak up about what we believe, we're going to be paying the consequences. Now that we have this knowledge, if we don't, we're just part of the problem. Of course, we're not going to find the solution in, in a two-week meeting. It's, it's going to be like, it's, I, I think, COP21, it's only, it's only the beginning of something. We all want justice! We all want justice! We are working inside! We are working inside! And outside! And outside! To make the world we want to see! To make the world we want to see! Everywhere we are, we're in a different situation. That's very cool. It's one thing to do a project, but it's, one, it's another thing to hear that you're influencing students. And that's yeah. clearly what's happening in that first... Uh, part of that uh, that clip is these students have been kind of inspired to action, right? Yeah, that's yeah. What, that's what it, I was, got from that. it was really um, it was really touching, and and I mean, when I set out to to make the project, I thought, well, at the very least, I'll learn a lot of things, <laughs> and if right. like, one other person learns <laughs> some things with me, great. Um, but to see this whole class of people that were engaged, you know, not only because of the series, but certainly, I think it helped kind of feel help them feel included. Um, and they were asking, we have a, we do a lot with post-its in the series, so it's kind of a... Yeah, I a, want to ask about the book. The yeah. book was really fun to watch. So the book, so they really loved the book, and they were like, can, like, do you have it? Can, can we see it? And I was <laughs> I was like, gonna, can I say that I was going to ask you to bring the book? Oh, and I don't know, I was like, there's no real reason for her to have the book here on a podcast where you can't see it. I think part of me just wanted to see it. Yeah, yeah, well, I have it. And just so uh, to explain, the, the book, there's all so many complex... Um, things that come up through the through your journey of trying to learn about this. I think a lot of documentaries find try to find a way to break down complex things through maybe a cartoon or diagrams. And so I think your method was to basically um, add diagrams and post-it notes to a book in a really organized way that you move the post-its around and and. Uh, and kind of take notes for people so they don't have to in a way. I mean, you're looking at the screen and you're taking notes, but I'm probably making it sound way duller than the, <laughs> the book. It's just, it's very, you know, um, it is, it's a nice way of, of breaking things down and keeping track of information for us as yeah. the viewers so we don't have to be writing and taking these notes. What was that acronym again? You know, you refer to the book um, when it's necessary. Yeah, well, and it, it kind of, it is the way my brain works, to be honest. Like. If I'm at a lecture or something, I I understand so much better if I take notes and if I draw little arrows and link things together. Right. And so that's kind of how my brain works. Right. You mentioned that you ran into people 
on just and because yeah. you, you fly to these different conferences that are happening yes. and you've run into people who have stopped you kind of in the street and said oh you really helped me yeah it, um so yet now since the series um i've now climate's kind of all i do so uh i consult for the world bank and uh, i was there with their team uh, at cop 23 in bonn so mm -hmm. Uh, I'm now about to go to COP24, which will be my fourth COP now. So I'm kind of in the bubble now. I have to be careful about the jargon because now, <laughs> now, now I know a lot more. Um, but yeah, I was. Have you I had was, to rewatch your series to be like, wait, what was I? Do you have to like go back? And be like, well, yeah, when I started. Well, you have the book, so you don't really look at the I do reference it. Um, no, when I started cutting together season two, I did look back and I was like, wow, I knew nothing. That's so cool to see that right. that arc. Um, but yeah, so I was in Bonn for COP24 uh, lugging my camera around because <laughs> that's what I always do. And this girl was walking, this kind of university-age student was walking towards me and I just had this funny look on her face and I was like, didn't know what was going on. And she just stopped me. She said, are you Kaya Rose? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, did, you did Climate Countdown? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and she's like, I, I watched all of it. I I was so it was so helpful before I went to COP twenty two. I didn't know anything, and I and I got there knowing what was going on, and I was like, it, it really it floored me because that's that was exactly my intent of like helping people do that. So right. that was yeah, it was very special. Yeah, um, I bet, I bet yeah. So and it's, it's really always good. cool to meet, and I love that we have all we have kind of geared it towards a younger audience, partly because that's you know who we are. We like talk in a kind of informal way and mm -hmm. um so i thought well best to communicate to people that i understand better and are around um but also i think it it's important to engage the younger generations partly because they they care they get it so much easier they actually like really get climate action right. and they care so much and to find ways of helping them kind of insert themselves into the process i think is really important right and, and you were telling me that wasn't even the first time you had been recognized. You went to the citizens' climate lobby, and yeah. the young people they were almost nervous to approach you <laughs> because they viewed you as like a celebrity. Yeah, I found out from one of them that the interns uh, were calling me their spirit animal, <laughs> which I had never been called a spirit animal before. So um, that was that was interesting, but very flattering. Um, right. Yeah, and so yeah, they, they them as well. It's it's really it's very cool. Let's jump into the other clip. Sure. Um, so the other clip is from uh, season two, so the season we're in right now. It's the first episode. It's basically the beginning, almost. It's not, it's almost the beginning. So we're just kind of setting up, like revisiting people and kind of where where are we now? Right, because this season two takes place in two thousand years late after two thousand eighteen. Yeah, two thousand eighteen. So, yeah, so it's years we're, after. We're, we've only released two episodes so far. Um, we're in the process of, of putting together the other ones, so it's it's a big one. Big thing that changed between COP twenty one and now is that uh, the new administration has decided to exit the Paris Agreement. So it's changed the dynamic, and so season two is very much um, around that. It's kind of how like now that the U.S. is leaving the Paris Agreement, what strategies do we need to keep climate action moving forward? And there are lots of different people taking different strategic routes. So this is kind of setting that up. 
At the Environmental Protection Agency under the current administration, which I was only there for a short time, um, I saw things that I never saw before. Uh, an administration who seemed like it was very focused on deconstructing the basic protections that our country needs to be able to move forward. Um, and I just couldn't be a part of it. So David and I know each other because we were in a terrible play together. We were, yeah, like over 10 years ago now. Climate is such an urgent, like our window of time is so short. Yeah. We're getting very close to certain thresholds, certain tipping points. Uh, here in California, the script uh, for what uh, the future looks like is what became pretty clear this year uh, with devastating wildfires on both ends of the state and then a huge uh, impact of storms right in the central coast. It's not just a concept for India, uh, climate change. We are already seeing this thing rising and uh, glacial melts and things like that. We in the world are beginning to see all the models, all the predictions, every dire prediction is beginning to come true. And that should make it much easier for us to push for action. Trump or no Trump. Exactly. In 2017, with the impacts of the hurricanes, the Caribbean islands definitely went into a state of, of reflection. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a wake-up call in a way. Yeah. That's really cool. You're really visiting lots of different places. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we were, were trying to reach out a bit more to other, other countries and and kind of diversify the people that we're talking to because I think it's important that in the climate action world that you have a lot of different people from different backgrounds working in different ways to solve the problem. Because it's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge issue and that's always been part of the, the kind of scope of Climate Countdown is to break it down into smaller bits so that it's more manageable and, and to help the audience kind of find their little niche of like where where their passions and their skills kind of meet with climate action right <laughs> and so part of season two is like talking to to people who are being very strategic so people who are using the judicial system and taking it to the courts and people that are you know city governments that are saying we're going to take this on instead Kai Rose from Climate Countdown. Listening to that interview and the three of us were looking at each other going, wait, what's COP again? Yeah. Uh, and so I should just <laughs> yes. mention it, it stands for Conference of Parties and it is the meeting of world leaders to discuss uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. What did you guys, what did you think? Kaya Rose. Bless you, girl, if you're listening to this. She's listening. <laughs> I'm sure. When we reorient our lives and put our, make sure our actions are being led by our values, uh, I think sometimes it can start off really empowering and then it can be super disorienting. Like when you dive into a situation, a social issue, especially one as big as climate change, you suddenly realize how much you don't know mm -hmm. yep. and you suddenly get overwhelmed um, by the complexity of the issue and it's like, where do we even start? Right. And, and I think that is just scary enough to deter a lot of people. And Kaya seems to have kind of jujitsued that, um, aikidoed it or something, um, and and just used that as her vehicle for change. And one thing in design school we learn is um, to design within your scope of influence and using your skills. So if you know that you're a hyper analytical person, for example, and you want to focus your work on 
um, maybe, I don't know, if you're more focused on policy or advocacy, then you sort of go in that direction. If you're a filmmaker, then you use your skills for that. But it's, it's nice um, to segment based on your skills and your strengths and let that lead you. It sounds like that's what she did. Yeah. Nice. So what did you think of, uh, of Climate Countdown? I thought that was so cool. Um, I'm sad I didn't know about this before, but I'm yeah. happy I do now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so cool. As an entrepreneur, I mean, we kind of have this, I guess, sometimes lonely journey of just sort of realizing that, yeah, you don't maybe know um, how to do something, but you just know that you care about it and you need to fix it. Yeah. Um, and so where do you start, right? Like we start from a place ideally of, passion um which it sounds like kaya clearly has um and i love that in trying to figure out you know how you would go about getting access to these world leaders or other you know trying to be in the room where the conversation is happening which isn't easy you can't just turn on a switch and do that um i love that yeah she said well what do i have access to i have mm-hmm. access to me yes yeah <laughs> um, yep, yep yep and i think that's so powerful and actually that that's the thing that's actually stood out to me which is um you know something we focus on a lot at NACO is that you know everyone actually has this incredible power we don't often give it to ourselves um and so just to realize like hey i want to do something about this and i'm i don't know i'm just going to start and just try to figure it out um and just jump in and i love that so mm-hmm. that really came through to me i'm really excited to actually watch them in full now yeah and it's fun to watch because she she does she's not uh, she's not shy about stumbling she doesn't act like she knows it all exactly. she's going to she's going to be the arbiter of and uh, convey all this knowledge to us you just see her struggling like wait what does that mean again and you know it makes it it kind of normalizes like it's okay not to know everything and just follow along yeah yeah I think there's something super powerful about the iterative process and I think that just opens up so much space to be ambitious and courageous in new areas um, and when you become your own mode of change, which she's doing, uh, we can all learn from that. Right. It's awesome. <laughs> cool. I think it's, I was just going to add, I think it's actually cool to, I mean, I guess it would apply to a lot of fields, but, you know, certainly with climate change to kind of bring viewers on that journey that seems like she's doing, which is just like, hey, I'm figuring this out. Come along with me. I'm going to ask the right questions. I'm going to try to, you know, figure out as much as possible and just grow and learn every day. Um, because interestingly, I guess climate change is a topic in which, you know, we have a ton of data and we're making a lot of predictions. I think those of us kind of in this space feel like we, we are pretty sure what's going to happen if we right. don't make some changes. Yeah, right. <laughs> but a lot of it is kind of based on this idea of, you know, extrapolation of data and like not knowing, but figuring out what we think we know based on trajectories and variables which you know can be applied to, to this journey too which right. is so cool i think yeah, I, I remember right she has to stop them at some point so like wait, wait what does that mean you know that kind Good. of thing yeah i want to hear a little bit more about future meets present tell me yes. a little bit about your project cool. um uh, i know you did an awesome uh display for us uh last week of your bracelet so yes, thank you but uh, i know you're more than that i i like to frame it as both um a vision and a context it's really that if you just take a moment and you visualize the future and what that might look like, I think we intuitively sense that the future will be beautiful, well-designed, streamlined, um, and sustainable. And we'll see things like solar panels and electric cars and rooftop gardens. Well, these types of things, we'll see them as normal. And what I like to imagine and what really excites me is that the idea that that future isn't some faraway place, but it's expressing itself in the present. And, and that's why 
it's called future meets present and not, for example, future today, um, because I, I feel like it denotes that personal aspect. It meets, it's a greeting, it's coming, it's here. Um, it's expressing itself. That ideal snapshot that we see is expressing itself in the present. And what that looks like is, um, well, yeah, things like Climate Countdown and things like NACO and things like what we produce, which is my first product, which is a bracelet tote. It's a bracelet that turns into a tote bag. And we're going to be first to market at the beginning of the year. Um, and all of these things that we make are just modes and vehicles of that expression. So that's what future means present means. That's what we see. And that's the context that we want to live into. What is your next accessory that you're going after? We're starting with plastic bags um, because that was my origin story. That's part of my origin story is a documentary that made me start questioning things, my own, my own consumption behavior. Um, and I also always wear bracelets and I use them to tell, story, to tell stories. But I don't have a bracelet that says anything about reusable bags. So I wanted to make one. And I didn't want it just to say reusable bag, I wanted it to be one. So the bracelet tote is our first product. And then we're going to have a line of products that are also tote bags um, that come in different forms. And different things. We're talking about like necklaces, belly button rings, yeah. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> belly all right. Ring. Exactly. That's exactly going to be the next product. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> Breaking ground with the podcast here. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I could tell you a couple other things. Well, just like, for example, next step we're going to do is a phone case. Um, nice. Oh, that's a great idea. To reach the masses, that type of thing. Cool. Um, and, and then we'll expand from there. Cool. So let's um, let's jump into the next interview, uh, which is with Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. Leftover Cuisine. Hey. Thank you thanks for being on the, the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. First off, what is Rescuing Leftover Cuisine? Sure. Rescuing Leftover Cuisine is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So essentially, we create partnerships with restaurants and other food businesses. And then whenever they have excess food, we have volunteers that go by and take that excess to people who need it in the nearby area. Usually about a 15-minute kind of walking or uh, biking or driving radius. Okay, so yeah. if someone wanted to volunteer, they just go to the website? Exactly. And yeah, look there's it up. A, yeah, exactly. There's a calendar and a map where people can just go and see whichever you know locations, times work for them. They can do it right after work, in between classes, uh, or when they're free on weekends. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it's only about a 30 minute kind of commitment. So you just go there, pick up the food, drop it off, and you're done. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, the reason that I'm talking to you today is for the, the idea of trying to eliminate waste. I, I read that uh, 22% of all waste is uh, just thrown right. away food. So That's right. That's right. New York City is one of those cities where it's just like, it's just so compact and, you know, there's just so much food coming in. And then at the same time, there's so much food being wasted. You know, what we do is we, we take that food and we bring it to people who need it, who are hungry and, and food insecure. Not a lot of people know this, and um, you know, feel free to cut me off if I'm rambling here. But, <laughs> but no. in terms of just you know the the kind of environmental impact of food waste, it's just insane. Like if you think about just from the very beginning of the supply chain, food waste um, has a huge impact. So when we're creating our food, 
we're using half the U.S. land, 80% of fresh water, and then 10% of the U.S. energy budget to basically take to produce all that food. And then we waste 40% of all of that. And then at the same time, when we actually have all that food and then we waste all that food, it's another huge detriment to the environment because when you, for example, throw out an apple core in the middle of hiking or something, it's completely fine. It just you know, goes through normal processes and aerates and decomposes. But unfortunately, in, you know, in kind of a city like New York City, where you're picking up tons and tons of trash, you're hauling it out to other states, <laughs> you're, you're then bringing it to landfills where it doesn't get to aerate. It basically just piles on piles on piles of food. Um, and it doesn't go. It doesn't have get get a chance to kind of aerate. It doesn't get a chance to go through normal processes, and instead emits methane gases, which are thirty times worse for the environment than carbon dioxide. So it's just a double whammy here. You know? No, that's like a triple whammy because I'm th- I'm just sitting here thinking like I was just thinking of the pure like oh it's waste, and then you're talking about the you're talking about the entire cycle right. from creation to actually decomposition that's right um and that there's yeah i hadn't thought of all those different dimensions and all those stages the um department of agriculture has a has a great kind of pyramid in terms of uh, i guess it's an inverted pyramid of like what um you should do with the excess food and the first thing is obviously reducing it on source Um, but the second thing is feeding people and then the third thing is feeding animals um and then finally compost and then the worst absolute thing that you should do is landfill it but there's just so many things you can do before that point mm-hmm. um, and that's what we're basically trying to do so yeah so tell me how did this all get started what was sure. the yeah was that um, so I mean it was more of a gradual thing to be honest I came across the concept of food rescue back in college when uh, in 2009 when I came across a club that was bringing leftover dining hall food to homeless shelters and essentially that club was in its infancy just getting started when I learned about it. And I had so many questions on like how it would, how it works and you know, like how is it even possible? Is it legal? All that stuff, same kind of questions we get asked all the time. Essentially just learned a lot about kind of volunteer management, learned like how to you know, do Google spreadsheets and manage people's time in terms of doing pickups and stuff like that. It wasn't a very sophisticated thing. Um, but it was a gradual thing and, and we basically kind of learned that there was this huge gap in the food rescue market in New York City where there were existing food rescue organizations that were doing a really great job um, but there were all these restaurants that wanted to donate their excess food but they couldn't because they didn't fall in the minimum pound requirements that existing food rescue organizations had so essentially we decided to kind of fill that niche and target that market um, by creating Rescuing Left Cuisine. So kind of, you know, took the idea of what we're doing at the university club, decided to apply some financial incentives so that, you know, food businesses can actually earn some money by doing this as well. Oh, okay. Um, and then um, kind of adding a technology element to it so that we can automate everything we were doing on Google Spreadsheets. <laughs> uh, and then finally just um, targeting this, this niche market and expanding it beyond the borders of NYU. So um, kind of took that to a venture competition, won some seed money, and um, you know went off to do our full-time jobs, actually. And then after about a year of working at J.P. Morgan and asset management full-time, I quit my job to do this full-time, and that's uh, four years ago now. So since then, it's been, it's been great. That's awesome. So how big has, has it grown? Like, what's your... Yeah, what's your... so we have seven full-time staff. Um, we are uh, in 16 different cities. Uh, they're pretty small. Satellite really? 16? Yeah. Nice. 
Um, they're pretty small. They're just run by very passionate, you know, local people that are looking to just help out in their you know neighborhood, basically. Um, but New York City is the majority of our operations and has the biggest impact. But essentially, um, we are we've now hit the three million pounds of food mark, uh, feeding two point five million meals for the food insecure, um, and preventing three hundred tons uh, from of CO two equivalent from being emitted into the environment. So. It's a it's a huge thing, but I mean, I think you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's still not that. You know, <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's so. just a chip in the whole grand scheme, but yeah, that's still yeah. amazing. Congratulations! Thanks, yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's definitely something to be proud of. What are some of your favorite? What are some of the highlights of the last five years? Oh man, uh, there's there's a lot. If if I think back in terms of like what are our highlights, it's been really kind of random and, and very luck driven, to be honest. I mean, we were very fortunate to, for example, three years ago. Um, be highlighted on you know CNN and a bunch of different news outlets, Huffington Post, Times, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, it's funny because when I first quit my job doing to do this, um, I was basically just doing all the pickups myself, and um, that was obviously not sustainable and not a really great idea <laughs> if you're looking to you know have more impact. So wait, but, so you, you quit your job and yeah. you have the webpage That's and you're the person going to the actually, webpage. Actually, we didn't even have the webpage, <laughs> to be honest. We, we had nothing. I mean, when, when I uh, quit my job, we just had like a static website. People were signing up online, but every single lead rescuer was me. And so okay. people would sign up, they would go with me, I would lead them on the pickup. And that was the first iteration of lead rescuers because I trained every single one of them right. um, while doing these pickups. But that allowed me to have more time to you know bring on more food donor partners etc um but it kind of evolved my role has evolved over time where i was like first i was doing all the pickups then i became a volunteer recruiter and manager and then <laughs> became like a van driver for a little bit and then you know like and then hired people and became like a you know in office manager can i say um, um, um yeah Earlier, I, I kind of butchered the opening. Uh, no, I would so really good. butcher the opening if you had that <laughs> no, on there. If it was co-founder, CEO, van driver, <laughs> uh, delivery All of the person. Roles. <laughs> That's why I feel like whenever people... You could have like, a really crazy business card. <laughs> I could. But so who are some of your uh, the volunteers that you've, yes. uh, you've brought on board? Who are yeah, some of your yeah. favorite volunteers? Who are some oh, of the, I mean, not I'm that, all you of know, volunteers. Of I have to... You only, know. <laughs> only play it for them. Don't play it for everyone. I mean, I can I can start like from our even our full-time staff members. Half of our uh, full-time staff members actually started as interns. So, for example, Aaron Wong, he, you know, started as a high schooler and he became a lead rescuer. He started a club at Hunter College High School that uh, was for RLC, ended up bringing on his own food donor partner, Euron Madison, um, with the club. Uh, and then the club uh, did the pickups for all the Euron Madison stuff. So it was like amazing. It was just like literally a mini branch within New York City. Right. And um, the, the Hunter Club, the Hunter College High School club still con- continues to this day. And then Aaron now is in Nashville um, uh, attending Vanderbilt, I think, uh, I hope. <laughs> and, um, and now he started a Nashville branch of RLC. Oh, nice. And so it's just amazing to see all these volunteers who really have a passion for this and really see how simple and, and impactful it is. Um, because you really get to see the actual bags of food about to be thrown out. And you get to see the people, the line of people waiting outside the the rescue mission, things like that. So um, it's just an amazing thing to kind of be 
really to be in touch with these people who are, you know, so much more, I think, dedicated than I was when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, Let's not um, get into that. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it is amazing. And, and um, there's so many volunteers like that. And um, I'm, I'm really lucky to be, you know, um, able to have met them. That's cool. So do you have any, uh, what about the restaurants? Do you have any highlight, like, uh, restaurants that uh, you find interesting or fun yeah. to work with? Yeah, I mean, all, again, all of them. I feel like it's hard to kind of pinpoint all of them, but um, there's so many. I mean, restaurants, um, the food donors, in, in my opinion, I think to a fault, in my, uh, to be honest, um, is kind of my favorite part of the piece. Oh, okay. And um, I, I only think that way because it really is the beginning and end. Like, it, like it, it, if without the food donor partner, there's no RLC like there's like you can't have anything you know um, and I think the you know very beginning partners for example AIG uh, they have a cafeteria um, that they basically run and they donate uh, all the excess food they have from that cafeteria and they they've been a, a supporter of ours since the like very very beginning and um, it's just uh, amazing the things they do so just recently they donated uh, 500 pounds of turkey I think just like last week uh, for New York City Rescue Mission's Thanksgiving banquet um, which was this past weekend which is crazy and, and so is that even was that even like a leftover not cuisine, even, or that not was just even. like they, yeah, they're like they we're gonna just, buy this exactly oh nice but the food donors are just amazing they're, without them there is no RLC what about the one thing I'm starting to think about is you know you bring these uh, the leftover cuisine goes to the homeless shelters and so they must be just getting like kind of random ingredients. Like, is there like people there question. that are just kind of going, all right, we got this, this, and this. That's what can we make question. from this? Yeah, it's all about logistics. We basically kind of set up these relationships with the restaurants where they're going to be donating their excess food at the end of the night um, and, you know, on a recurring basis. So they can do it daily, they can do it every other day or once a week or whenever they have excess food. And essentially that allows for us, as well as the human services agency that we're going to drop off the food at, to predict and to actually see on an average basis how much food there's going to be, maybe like plus 10, you know, plus or minus 10 pounds, uh, but also the types of food. So um, just in terms of just examples, um, we work with a place called Inde, uh, which is a, a kind of a fast casual Indian place on 28th and Broadway, which is I think 26th and Broadway actually. When they have the kind of excess ingredients um, at the end of the night, it's pretty, like consistent like you know you're gonna get a, a side of chicken a side of you know beef and all that stuff um and the sides and so the the human service agency is able to predict that and rely on it and offset their food budget so that that money can be used for something else wow and okay. that's i think what is the real benefit here because obviously feeding people are is, is great and, and is helpful and really urgent need that needs to be filled um, but at the same time, if we can really help solve a long-term problem by taking that money and allowing it to be used for job skills training or more housing or, you know, that kind of thing, it would be so much more impactful. You know, I guess stereotypically you imagine soup kitchens and those kinds of things that have like really not particularly appetizing food, yeah. but you must have some really nice upscale oh, yeah. places that can connect for sure. people with really nice... For sure. Do you have any like meals that kind yeah, of jump yeah, to your yeah, mind yeah. about like, uh, yeah. like, oh, this place sends so the best steaks or something? <laughs> so there's a cheese that's being donated, which is crazy. Um, we also uh, actually get a ton of great things from kind of these cafeterias that are 
from startups that are well funded, <laughs> so oh, okay. like Digital Ocean, all that kind of stuff. Um, they get catering that is like just amazing food. Um, so like I, I've seen uh, pickups with like sushi, for example. It's just crazy that you know that kind of high quality food is just going to waste. Right. Um, when when we were working with them, we had um, an interview with one of the people at the New York Commission. They were talking about how you know <laughs> they're they're being fed like the best food uh, in the city because I mean to to be honest, it's just all that food is just going to waste, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it really doesn't have to be. So. That's cool. Well, this is this has been a real fun interview. Thank you very much you for, for uh, doing this. Yeah, thanks. All right, appreciate it. All right, so that's rescuing leftover cuisine. What did you guys think of that? I thought it was great. I mean, food waste is definitely one of our biggest challenges um, from an environmental perspective. I, I love organizations that can find inefficiencies in the world, mm-hmm. and this is a major one. Yeah. Um, you know, at NACO, we talk a lot about, think a lot about composting and how we can sort of divert anything from landfill. That's, in fact, our entire mission is coming from a different angle. And this is something I feel like there's a huge gap because um, I'm happy to see that they're succeeding. You know, I've personally had situations where like, you know, at the end of the night, I remember even like traveling through an airport and there was this place that had all this food and I, I did want some food and they were like closing the gate on me and I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll take this, you know? And then and I was like, I, what are you going to do with all that? Like, I, I'm, I don't really need more, but like, I probably have a long trip ahead. Like I would, t-. and they're like, nope, we have to throw it all away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? You just, like, yeah. I can't even have, like, you know, I mean, I, I guess I would buy it, but you know, right. the thing is. It just broke my heart, and I know that right. that happens to you know, like you said, it's millions of millions of metric tons of food, right? Just basically creating methane in landfill. Um, there has to be a better way here, and it seems like they've at least figured out a path. Yeah, I'm rooting them on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's cool because they're they're really not a, an environmental organization; they're really a feed the homeless organization yeah. with this kind of almost uh, inadvertent but amazing side product of, of what they do is really relieving landfills of a lot of all this food that would end up there. Yeah, he started when, when he was just, when he was listing out his metrics, he shared 3 million pounds. They just hit their 3 million pound mark of food diverted, food saved, 2.5 million meals served. And then he ends with 300 tons of CO2 diverted away, which would have been a result of the food going to landfill. And so and that is a nice cherry on top. And I think what's really cool about Robert's story, so kudos to you, Robert, and Kara's, or Kaya, sorry, Kaya's is like they both just started um, getting their own hands dirty first. Mm-hmm. He said that. He said, I would just go to these places and pick up meals and just deliver myself. It's just the way it is. You become galvanized by something, by a new vision and an intention. And then, then, and then he says he has seven full-time staff now. And three of them start, or he said half. So three and a half of those full-time staff <laughs> started out as interns. Right. So it's great to hear that scale. Good, good job, Robert. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I don't think he's listening. Oh. No, Kai is listening. But not okay, Robert. but not Robert. <laughs> cool. Yeah, actually, and you mentioned I wanted to hear a little bit more about Nico. So you like you just completely hate garbage. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that is a fair statement. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I started this organization, a company called Nico, with the idea of really creating alternatives to single-use plastics. 
Um, I've been a long time diver and the ocean nerd. And so kind of whatever chance I had, I would always go diving. Um, and I was actually seeing more and more plastic in mm. the water, um, over and over. And I mean, around three years ago, I finally just had enough and decided that I wanted to do something about it. Um, so it started with this idea of actually originally just creating a better coffee lid. You know, we throw away about a hundred million coffee cups and lids every single day in the U S they are not being recycled. I mean, virtually no plastic is. And so I wanted to create an alternative and figured out, you know, there's gotta be something we can do here to help also just shift behavior away from the single use mentality. So we've actually created the first and only biodegradable coffee lids. We have compostable cups and some other things in that single use category, but our whole mission was to try to, you know, shift towards reusable culture as much as mm-hmm. feasibly possible. Right. We actually also designed, uh, we can't see it on podcast, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> we created a really beautiful vacuum insulated stainless steel bottle, um, which, you know, like some of the other bottles out there would keep things hot or cold all day long, fix some design issues that I have with some of the other products out there. And um, we also make stainless steel straws. And so we say we make alternatives for one time, some time, and all the time use. Mm. And NACO, N-A-E-C-O, is actually the word ocean reversed. So we're trying to just connect our behavior and you know our daily habits right. um, to how they affect the ocean. You know, a lot of things that are thrown away, which you know we use air quotes, is not. There is no such thing as a way. It ends up in the ocean. And eventually it will. Thankfully, the world is, I think, starting to pay more attention. We're starting to understand the consequences of what we've been doing over the last 50 years and how rapidly that is impacting our ecosystem and our own health. And yes, whales and turtles and birds and fish, but you know, ultimately our own ability to actually survive here. You know, Our goal is to have this kind of long-term plan of how we look back at this period of time, this like 2017, 2018, and think like, okay, I'm glad we made some changes then because had we not, we might not be here. That's awesome. So I want to jump into the the next interview, which is with Grades of Green, which is a a fellow CSI member here. And something else I want to uh, shout out to the band as well. Um, So all the music you're hearing in this episode come from a band called Institute of Flyer Learning, who I saw live a couple years ago. I appreciate the the kinship and connection to a, a band. That's cool that you got them on your... Yeah, no, and they're awesome. They're really fun. They're great. Yeah. So let's jump into the interview with Great Degree. Grades of Green. I have uh, Justin Bulova, who is the communications contractor, and Emily Stewart, who is the program manager. So what is Grades of Green? So Grades of Green is an environmental nonprofit, um, and we were founded 10 years ago in 2009 in Southern California, actually by four moms in the South Bay area who you know wanted to instill environmental values in the next generation of leaders. You know, starting out as a regional program in LA, we've really grown all across the nation and also across the globe. So right now we're really fortunate to work with over half a million kids um, in over 20 countries. Um, That's huge. Yeah, and you know, the movement has just really grown um, 
And now we have offices in Los Angeles, and we also have an office here in New York City. So yeah, our, our mission is really to empower kids to take action to care for the environment because you know kids are the ones that are inheriting the earth and they're our future. So by empowering them to take action, you know it kind of does the double duty of both you know creating a better environment now and also for the future. How does that work? Like, how do you get like the feedback from students where the students make the decision over? what they're going to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that all of our campaigns are completely student-led. Right. The students are taking charge. They're the ones identifying the issues that are important to them. So whether they're interested in marine biology or agriculture, they follow their interests to understand how environmental issues impact their area of interest. And then they brainstorm with uh, different mentors that are provided different sustainability solutions and how that they can make an impact today. Um, the metaphor that we like to use is the metaphor of the seatbelt. 20 years ago, nobody would put on a seatbelt in the car, but today, the first thing you do is as soon as the car is, you buckle up. We would like to make it so that environmental conservation is second nature in students' minds. Yeah, and by po- you know following their passions, they're much more likely to you know believe in what they're doing and, mm-hmm. and to take action every day. So um, we're really excited to support a really diverse group of students across the globe who are facing you know different barriers and different environmental issues. Right. So tell me, who are, what are some of your the favorite initiatives that students have, have come up with? God, there's so many to choose from. You have to pick. Yeah. <laughs> amount of time here. Well, I can pick, since we're in New York right yep. now, um, I can pick a New York example. Um, so we're really excited to expand our waste reduction programs in the New York area. But one team that we've worked with in the past year is a group of students, middle school students from Mott Hall 3, which is a public um, Title I school in the Bronx. And they decided that they were really, um, you know, frustrated with the amount of waste that they saw in their school. There was litter in the hallways. They felt like things weren't being properly put in the right bins, not properly recycled. There seemed to be a lot of confusion, like kids didn't know where to put things. And they kind of ended up, everything ended up in the trash. So they were paired up with a Grades of Green mentor. We actually were fortunate to get to go to the school, meet with the kids, brainstorm, um, you know, what, what the issue was. They started collecting data and going on the ground, observing, looking at how many trash bags were produced each day, um, recording what was going in the recycling, what was going in the waste, and then um, starting to come up with a plan to reduce waste by setting up sorting stations at lunchtime. That's one of um, the methods that Grades of Green has developed, you know, in L.A., in New York, all over the world, Um, but basically setting up stations where you have your food waste that's compostable and separating out liquids, you have your recyclable waste, and then you have your landfill waste. Um, And so these kids really, they were awesome. They set up a team of kids who were at every single lunchtime. Um, They had their gloves on. They had the different bins with the signs that they'd created. And they made sure (laughs) that all of the kids in their school were sorting into the correct bin. And they were like, it was also just a great example of like the no, no nonsense New York attitude. Like if a kid like put something into the wrong bin, they're like, no, you were putting on gloves and you were fishing that out and you're putting in the right bin because we're going to do this right. And um, they took the time to also explain why it's important to make the differentiation and go into these specifics about why we differentiate between the recyclables. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one really great thing that we emphasize in our programs is, you know, collecting those metrics and that data. So they saw how much waste they're producing before they started the sorting stations, then they compared it to the trash bags after. And just over the course of a month, they were able to reduce their waste that was going to landfills by 70%. Really? Uh, Yeah, 70%. So it's just 
just by having um, by having their passion and by setting up a system, they were able to make a huge impact. And for kids to be able to see that number, that it's possible, I think it's, you know, something Grades of Green really prides ourselves on is, you know, having a positive attitude, a can-do attitude, because you know, the world's problems seem so big, but when you see that just through your own personal actions, you can decrease waste by 70% in like not that long, um, it's pretty inspiring. That's very yeah. cool. In, in 2017, our students through the water campaign protected 16 million gallons of water. And not that long ago, uh, I believe it was last year's waste campaign, we diverted 480 tons of trash. Combined globally. So these results are not insignificant. These are extremely no, significant figures. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, you have any you have any favorite initiatives? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, one of my favorites is uh, one of our schools in uh, Rome, in Italy. Uh, it's a Bottega Arti Creative. They're a performance art school. Um, I believe Marinella found us through Instagram, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, since then, they've been a staple in all of our campaigns, and they have put together some very, very, very uh, inspiring videos that uh, they've shared with the community. The one from this year's water campaign particularly was very fascinating. They found that the water infrastructure in their city was decomposing from the inside. And their video encouraged uh, other youth activists. This video, by the way, features students from age 10 to age 13. And they encouraged other youth activists in the area to make this issue more well-known among the uh, Rome government. And they've had some significant traction. And unlike the Mod Hall Academy, which was kind of like, all right, we're going we're gonna to make a change to so the policies, this sounds like it's more of a, an, uh, an awareness campaign. Yeah. During our waste campaign in 2018, it was the uh, Davies Ave Elementary in Los Gatos, California, that banned the single-use plastics from the entire school district. They actually succeeded in banning it from the entire school district. So there's actually like really amazing results that have come from the campaign. I can tell you also in 2015, we had a student, Joshua, that was recognized by uh, Barack Obama. It was the uh, President's Youth Environmental Award. You're in Uganda, Kenya. A, how do you get into countries like Kenya and Uganda? And B, like what are some of the things that have happened on the ground there? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, <laughs> honestly, a lot of it has been organic. Um, our Instagram page has kind of taken off. We have over 25,000 um, followers, though it's at Grades of Green, and we have constant updates with stories and news about what our students are up to. A lot of these, especially the schools in, in Eastern Africa, have just found us through Instagram because our programs, um, thanks to you know our sponsor support, they're actually free um, at no cost to all of the students who are participating. So it's something that's really attractive, you know, having a free program that provides environmental education, which is something a lot of places don't get, um, and customized, you know, support to the students. So in Kenya, they did something with the wells and fresh water, is that right? Yeah, that's a great one. So St. Rosa is a high school in Uganda they are in an area that has, you know, some pretty serious water quality issues, lots of, you know, uh, point source contamination, lots of waterborne diseases. Um, and so water quality and lots of littering that, you know, contaminates the water and they don't really have a very developed um, waste infrastructure system. So a lot of waste ends up going into the water. Um, so that was something that they, you know, 
took note of and they started an awareness campaign, started developing some best practices. Um, the kids actually went out into the community through some public meetings and presented to community members like, hey, put your waste here. Don't dump it in the water. Here are a few ways that we can protect our water and, and help. Um, the kids to- showed up at community meetings and like made yeah. this to... Yeah, they actually presented to like the village chairman and to local leaders um, and, you know, all of the community members who attended. And they kind of came to the conclusion, you know, to the consensus that a well was something that they really needed to be able to provide safe water. Um, And they came up with some really innovative, you know, solutions, ways to conserve water because water conservation is also an issue they were just like an all-star team that worked on so many different <laughs> issues um so they created like a water filtration system in their school garden where they used um pla- or water a drip irrigation system where they use plastic bottles and like cut punched holes in them so that the water would like drip through the soil slowly and it actually ends up conserving a lot of water um and you know through all of these efforts they were actually chosen as the winners of our inaugural water campaign. And so thanks to our sponsors, one of our big sponsors for the water campaign was Boeing. Um, We were able to provide some eco-grant prizes to the winning teams. And so they received a $500 grant, which was enough to kickstart their well project. Um, And so they were able to build a community well just with that eco-grant. So just an example of how, you know, that those eco-grants kind of go back into the community and back into the solutions. That's really cool. And we're very grateful to our sponsors who are able to make that possible. Not only are we able to bring, you know, free resources to all of the student groups, but to be able to make these eco-grants a, a possibility is really just monumental for us. And so really big thank you to Boeing, LA Sanitation, LA Car Guy, uh, anybody I'm forgetting? Yeah, King's Care Foundation King's has Care. been huge, Northrop Grumman. Um, LA County Third District and the Carton Council have all been amazing sponsors. To your point, you know, Grades of Green, we consider ourselves an environmental nonprofit that focuses on student leadership. So yes, these students are being, you know, they're they're taking it upon themselves to go to the community board, to take action in their community with their elected representatives. It's really about empowering the students and the next generation to be the kind of leaders that will make our planet a priority. So I'm a former teacher and I still work in education it's the best possible way to educate students, which is to say, like, all right, you're going to take control over your own, what you're learning. But it's also the most challenging. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a super challenging thing. What are, what are your secrets, basically? Yeah. I, I really struggled with that kind of thing. So. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's, it is true that it, you can it, a good question. it is a good question. <laughs> um, yeah. I would say, well, first of all, we're just lucky to have a really great team on our staff. Um, A lot of our Grades of Green mentors are former educators or are educators. Something that we provide that I think is a great incentive is having those eco-grants. We also have a few student leadership awards. So those incentives help, I think, because kids, yeah, they want to feel recognized. They want to know that they're working towards something and, and that, you know, they're achieving something. There's a lot of different ways that we engage with our students and connect them with each other, too. Right. And that's Um, one of my favorite things. When we connect uh, schools here in the United States within a school that's international, all of a sudden there's an exchange of ideas. They're talking about collaborating on projects. They're talking about what are the issues in your area versus what are the issues in my area versus what are the issues we have in common. And, you know, all of a sudden there's a conversation and they're meeting new friends. They're, you know, uh, exchanging cultural ideas and things like that. Yeah. And actually, I can't believe I didn't mention it before, but St. Rosa, that team I was talking about that was a winner of the water campaign, um, they actually worked really closely with a team in Omaha, Nebraska, 
Um, we partnered them up because they had some interests in, and in common. And the Nebraska team is very, um, they have like a STEM lab. So they're very focused on science and they have a whole like really intensive laboratory. And so they were d- doing some testing and developing um, some like aquaponic systems that the St. Rosa team was actually able to test in Africa and like was pretty successful. So, you know, working That's together, really on, cool. yeah, having those projects working together and, you know, recognition has come out of that. I think the Nebraska team was recently recognized from, for an award from their the Secretary of State. Secretary of State. Yeah. So, yeah. and one thing that's very cool to, to notice is that that Nebraska team, it's actually not a school. It's a 4 H club. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a school to be involved. You can be all kinds of different student groups, um, after school clubs, sports teams, anybody who is passionate and wants to make a difference can get involved. That's really cool. So just, uh, yeah, tell me about, so you're going to do waste. That's correct. In, yep. uh, in the spring. Well, I think that probably starts with mostly single-use plastics and really the issues that we're seeing with that really all around the world and in our oceans and our toxic, you know, pollution that's going on in the mm-hmm. oceans. So I think it really started from there, but it also has got a lot to do with here in New York. Uh, they're implementing composting in the five boroughs now as well as going to be the green buckets coming around. So um, if you are interested in composting, that's going to be available to you, I think, in all five boroughs by 2019. So all of these different legislations, all the different programs that are happening, as well as the current events, it's just, it seems like a common sense issue that, you know, this is something that we need to work, worry about. And, uh, you know, it's really transitioned from, uh, what is it that you use, uh, not recycling, but more refuse and reduce. Mm-hmm. And another reason why we focused on waste is that we've had um, in Los Angeles, for the past seven years, we had a really, really successful on-the-ground program in Southern California schools called the Trash-Free Lunch Challenge. So it was sort of a similar model. It was a competition. Um, it was limited to schools back then, um, between schools over the course of a year, and they worked to reduce their lunchtime waste. So using some of the methods that I described before about sorting stations, um, some of them implemented composting, um, and that had an average, I think, of 65% reduction of waste over the course of the school year. So we've really incorporated a lot of those best practices and you know, looked at those case studies and used that to develop our waste campaign. Because it was so successful and so popular that we wanted to make it accessible to you know, students who weren't in the Southern mm-hmm. California area. That was Grades of Green, and I know you guys know them a little bit, but what did you think of that interview? I, yeah, I know Grades of Green personally, and just from working on them with them in different projects, but I don't think I've ever actually just heard in one shot all the different things they do. Mm-hmm. I've, I was aware of their water campaign, I was aware of the different things that they do with schools to um, to encourage waste diversion and recycling properly, but never the scope like that. And I didn't realize that it started with four mothers in California. And from scaling from there to, we just checked right now, 26.6 thousand followers. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Their brand is so strong. It's so good. And I think that I, and I can't remember if it comes up in the interview, but I think it's only 10 years, like, which mm. is a lot of time, but to have such a huge global impact is, yeah. is not a lot of time. What are they touching? Like half a million kids? I think that, yeah, that's what he said. It's remarkable. Yeah. So cool. I'm not biased, I was going to say. <laughs> yes, you are. Because I know them and I like them so much. Um, 
But no, really, I love what they do. And I mean, you know, we're here talking about environmental issues and it's interesting because I think the younger people are, the more, you know, we found that people care more. And I think care is kind of a weird word, but, you know, if you're going to be here longer, you probably have more vested interest. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I mean, ultimately, it's like you can give a student a fish, but like right. teach a student how to fish. Right? Right. I mean, that's really what they're doing. And so I feel like empowering students to become leaders and letting them kind of address, not letting them, empowering them to address mm-hmm. real world problems in real situations is an incredible um, opportunity for, for the students. It's an incredible um, mission for Grades of Green. And I feel like the ripple effects of what they're doing will be felt for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And that's so cool. Right. Yeah, I think they're probably one of the more fun organizations to follow because of that ripple effect. And I mean, I don't, I, I guess I'll have to ask them, but it's like, okay, you work with a student for a period of time and they create this program, great. But they're going to go on to then have another idea, right? Or mm-hmm. they're going to be, yeah. a, you know, a, a person in the world doing something. Right. And maybe it'll be influenced by their work with Grades of Green. Um, or maybe they'll use their other position to realize like, hey, I'm working with this company. We should be doing this thing, drawing from that experience. So, I mean, I don't know how you can track that, but, you know, I'm sure that they are planting seeds that will grow a lot of things. Yeah. Time. That's true. What, what was the trigger for you guys to be where you are now? For me, it was a documentary. For you, it was scuba diving. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was- it's hard to, de- to define the start, I guess, because it always is just right. constantly building. Um, but if I had to say anything, it's a documentary. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it's funny that what I'm doing now draws on so many different things. And actually, I found this piece of paper that like written on like 15, 20 years ago about everything that I wanted to do. Right. And actually, NACO com- really compiles all those things together, um, which was pretty cool to find. Right, yeah. I mean, I fell in love with the ocean at a young age, and I don't remember that exact moment. But mm-hmm. like my biology teacher in high school, I remember we went as a class down, drove down to Florida from Virginia and spent a week doing um, at the National Marine Harbor Institute doing just like geeky marine biology stuff. And that was the first time I'd really seen a lot of that stuff. And I was interested sort of peripherally, but like, I mean, I, I, so I almost was a marine biologist. I didn't choose that as an actual career path. Right. But, I mean, definitely, I draw from that a lot. Um, so that's it. And that's what you're saying. These kids in 10 years, 15 years. Right. This is so crucial at an age where people are impressionable and mm-hmm. to give them that platform and the ability and the confidence to say like, hey, you can actually do this. Yeah. And then we can measure the results and actually you can attribute that to something that you did. Right. Um, that's so cool and so powerful. Yeah. So if imagine just that illumination you had and if there was nothing to nurture it. These kids in, in high school now, A, they're just so much, so much more hyper aware of the world than we were at that age. And Grades of Green is giving them that platform. And just to exactly to that point, um, in one of their projects, they diverted up to 70% of waste from landfills because they gathered these students to volunteer and sit by the trash cans with their gloves on and make sure that people were recycling properly. And Emily said it really nicely that it's passion plus the right system mm-hmm. is what equals 70% diversion rate. And that's uh, just so powerful. And it, it draws on one of my favorite mantras, just a little uh, thing that I like to live by. And it's that self-expression is a life force and life always gravitates towards life. 
I'm going to have to re-listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got that on tape. Um, Thank God. This is why I, rec- yeah. I should record every conversation. Yeah, 8.30 at night. I'm going to yeah. be like, I don't, it's not fully processing, but I think what you just said is amazing. I just don't know why. It's yeah, awesome. exactly. Yeah, right. Me too. <laughs> what did he just say? I think, you know, just to, to synthesize everything, the three stories that we've been talking about, um, it's great from the from grades of green to... Uh, you know, climate countdown and res- rescuing leftover cuisine. These these guys, they just are galvanized by their their visions and their intentions. They're acting on it, and then people around them become further galvanized and help them achieve that vision. It's, yeah. it's super cool. One thing I see is like a contrast between everything seems to be bad news wise. I don't mean just like the way the news is presented, Good. but just yeah. like. Obviously, like there's not a lot of time to make a difference from the climate and things are getting worse with plastics. Yet at the same time, talking to you guys and talking to these people, there is a lot of excitement, which is like weird. How did, how how can you square that excitement? Well, I think it's uh, <laughs> 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 smiling very broadly. No, it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. I mean, and especially when it comes to environmental issues, I think that it's incredibly daunting and it's kind of depressing frankly right Amir is always positive and it's really infectious um, I'm not that way <laughs> I'm an optimist but no I mean actually it's funny we put a smile on our logo which in yeah. part is mm-hmm. because you know we're talking about something that actually is pretty depressing but rather than focus you need to understand there's a problem in order to care enough to want to have a solution I think but to just simply focus on that emotion I think is also not productive so it's more about how do we like we can talk about these innovative things that we're doing or that we're building community. And, you know, I think particularly um, what's so cool about all the interviews we just listened to and um, the way that I, I think I see this positivity is, you know, people are kind of realizing you can't rely on someone else to do things for you. And, you know, or certainly you shouldn't, whether it's the government or just some other, you know, person or company far away. And it's like, okay, what can I control? And what can I, you know, take initiative on and so you know it's like kai started with her thing she's like well i have access to me right, right. and then yeah. robert's like okay well i'm at nyu can t- get them to maybe do something or okay and then yeah with grades of green it's like well what's happening in our school you know what can we do here mm-hmm. and then obviously that can expand but you know people realize that this is something that you know we all should take personally and that um i mean i I have ups and downs every day, and I think that it's tough. I mean, there are days right. it feels like you know you can't breathe because it's a really big problem that we're trying to work right. on. Um, but it's also through hearing about other stories and other organizations and people that are working on these mm-hmm. these solutions, really, um, that I think collectively inspire each other. Um, and it's so great. I mean, it inspires me to hear these things. Right. Um, so. All right. Yeah, I mean, the other side of that, the slightly cynical side, is if you look at the exponential growth of population, it's going to take an increasing number of people who are doing things like this just to stay even. Right. <laughs> I mean, never mind. See, I mean, that's the yeah. thing. There's the contrast <laughs> yeah, right there. You're yeah. giving me a depressing statistic, but laughing and smiling through it. Yeah. So it's like you're able to have excitement despite all of the overwhelming challenges of, of <laughs> that you're up against. Well, so I, I think I think there's there's two trend lines that we can we can look at that's it's the systems collapse which is super dominant and very prevalent and and somewhat seductive for lack of better terms i don't know we just we 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 somehow gravitate to bad news to to fearful news right mm-hmm. we, it, 
it, it pulls us in for some reason. There's that trend line happening. And then there's also this this opposite trend line that's happening where people that have been brokenhearted in their own lives and have made changes in their own lives, where those changes are starting to overflow. Their cup is overflowing. And we see that in the entrepreneurship world. We, we see that in the benefit corporation world with companies that are reorienting to function for a triple bottom line, people, profit, planet. And we see that in the nonprofit world and this, this growing swell of people that are using their businesses and functions as a, most, as a means for good. And that trend line, it hasn't peaked yet, but it is, it's, it's coming. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. And then I'll share another little mini mantra and it's that conflict always precedes concert. Even in the context of a band, they're going to sound like crap mm-hmm. before they sound good. That one I got, by the way. I, okay. I followed that one. <laughs> yeah, I got that one too. Cool. And you gave me a lead. You were like, all right, you know, focus on this. Prime you guys. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's happening. And our time window for taking immediate action is narrowing. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just increasing the pressure. And for some, it's scary. Yes. And I think for others, um, it's motivating. Um, I remember after the elections in 2016, this space that we're in, in parentheses, we are in the Center for Social Innovation in New York City, and it's a socially conscious co-working space. And after the elections, everyone was fired up. Everyone was fired up. And the faith now is not in the government, but the faith now is on the ground. It's in our own actions. Mm -hmm. And that inspires me tremendously. It's The swell is growing, and I think we're seeing amazing things as a result of it. All right. So this happiness is not from alcohol. That's what you're telling me. Yes, it is. Okay. Oh, it is alcohol yeah, as well. Okay. Yes. Oh, I mean, I mean, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't drink tonight. Only because I'm cold. No, just, uh, just uh, um, Well, this has been this has been fantastic. Thank you both for uh, for all the yes, time that you've yes. put into to hanging out with me tonight and all the insights yeah. and everything you had to to say. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no? Thank you so much. Yeah. Again, I just want to say thank you to Kaya Rose from Climate Countdown. I want to say thank you to Robert Lee from Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. I also want to say thank you to Justin Boulevard and Emily Stewart from Grades of Green. Of course, I want to thank my two wonderful co-hosts, Amir Jindali from Future Meets Perfect and Bill Levy from Mako. And I also want to thank the Institute of Flyer Learning, the band whose music was featured throughout this episode. They have a new album out from this year. Links to all of these people, organizations, and bands will be available on nonprofittangent.com, so go there and check it out. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month with a new episode. So I'm here with Robert Lee, the co-founder and CEO of, um, damn it, I screwed up. <laughs> you just said it. No, because I didn't, I know, I didn't write it down. <laughs>